the escalating battle now against oil and gas development in B.C., in Canada. It is the oil and gas divestment campaign. This is pressure on banks, public institutions, organizations to cancel any investments they have in oil and gas projects. Of course, it's all about the effort to fight climate change. Got a great panel standing by to discuss this. First, have a listen to this here now. now this is an example of this divestment campaign. This is actor Mark Ruffalo. He is a fierce opponent of oil and gas development in Canada. Here he is calling out the Royal Bank. Have a listen to this. I'm rising in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en Indigenous land defenders against the RBC-financed coastal gas link pipeline. RBC is Canada's number one fossil fuel bank and the fifth worst offender in the world, bankrolling coal, oil, and gas to the tune of $160 billion and counting since the Paris Agreement was signed in 2016. RBC, you have the power to stop CGL. There's no way to spin this as responsible investment. This is in direct contradiction of your climate commitments and reconciliation rhetoric. Okay, that's actor Mark Ruffalo there going Hulk mode against uh, pipelines. All right, let's discuss this now, this divestment campaign against oil and gas. Great panel for you this morning. Cody Battershill, he's the founder of the group Canada Action. Uh, they support the Alberta oil sands. Hey, Cody, thanks for coming on again. Thanks, Mike, for having me. Okay, also on the line is Peter McCartney, climate change campaigner at the Wilderness Committee. Peter, thank you for being here again today. You bet. Thanks for having me. Okay, guys, thank you to both of you. Peter, let me go to you first. You support this divestment cam campaign, right? Tell me why. Of course I support the divestment campaign. You know, I think uh, when people are invested in a company, um, that means they believe it has a future, that it will continue to grow. And for oil and gas companies, that is at odds with a safe planet. And it has always been wrong to invest in a product that you know is killing people and that is what fossil fuels are doing all around the world in Pakistan and in British Columbia, Puerto Rico. These climate disasters are wreaking havoc in our communities and in investing in the future of these companies is wrong. Cody, what do you say to that? Divesting from fossil fuels during a global energy crisis is a direct security threat to Canada and our allies. Food, energy and geopolitical security all depend on affordable, accessible, reliable energy that is not weaponized. If we want to talk about who's being killed right now, Russia and Ukraine and many other countries around the world that don't share our values for protecting people and reducing emissions, there's a balance to this. The only people who benefit from divesting Canadian oil and gas and from the actions of Peter and his group are our competitors like Saudi Arabia, mm. Russia, UAE, Iran, and other countries that don't share our values. Mm. Peter. That's just not true. I mean, uh, there's been $40 trillion divested from oil and gas companies and coal companies over the past few years since that campaign started. And what that has done is that has moved money from the problem to the solution, uh, where people are investing in renewable energy. The reason that we are seeing um, Europe have to respond to, uh, to this war in Russia and Ukraine is because they are so dependent on fossil fuels. If we had done this decades ago, when we said we would, 
we would no longer have to rely on these, um, you know, despotic regimes that uh, that use oil and gas mm-hmm. as a weapon. So the best hey. solution to making those people have no power whatsoever is to divest from fossil fuels and get on renewable energy as fast as possible. Hey, Cody, is there any evidence that these divestment campaigns are actually working? Like, we just played that clip of actor Mark Ruffalo saying, calling on the Royal Bank to stop funding this pipeline. Like, is that actually working? Like, I don't see how a a bank is going to pull out of a project that they're committed to, but your thoughts. Hollywood millionaires like Mark Ruffalo and Peter like to highlight a few indigenous peoples in, in communities that might be opposed to these projects, but they ignore the massive majority of peoples and communities and businesses that are indigenous that do support these projects. Mark doesn't have to worry about where his money's coming from. He's a millionaire. Peter's got a nice job with wilderness committee. We need balance. These communities have a right to say yes as well. And we have seen a massive economic impact to Canada. For example, when stat oil sold their Alberta oil sands assets, because Peter's buddies at Greenpeace were protesting in Norway, they went and immediately invested almost the same money into Brazil. Global demand for oil and natural gas is growing. We can see the truth and the facts, contrary to what Peter is saying, that demand for all energy is growing. Canada is a leader in renewables. We need renewables, but we can't black out our society today, which is what would happen if we went with Peter's plan. Okay, Peter, go ahead and respond to that. Then we're going to fit a quick break in here. Go ahead. There's nothing to do with blacking out society. We have all of the technology we need to get off oil and gas, and what's missing is the political will. And when companies, when banks are invested, literally invested in these oil and gas companies continuing to operate, continuing to grow, that means they are using their political power to fuel climate change. And by removing that um literal investment in this uh, future that is going to wreak havoc across the world, we are shifting the calculus for decision makers to move faster to green energy. All right. Welcome back. As we continue debating oil and gas divestment in Canada, the pressure on banks and other groups to cancel their funding of oil and gas projects up both sides of it for you. Cody Battershill, Peter McCartney. Let's go to your phone calls here. Scott in Surrey. Hi, Scott. Go ahead. Yeah, hi, good morning. Great uh, topic. My question is simple. I'm a pensioner, right? And I've got money invested in banks and all sorts of stocks. And I get dividends from that, which helps supplement my old age pension. So if we get out of this, if they follow the lead of the Wilderness Committee, is the Wilderness Committee going to come in and make me whole? Are they going to sit down and pay the shortfall because... Everybody got out of oil and gas. Yeah, Peter, what do you say? What do you say to him, Peter? Go ahead. So what we're seeing is that lenders and banks and financial institutions are recognizing that investing in fossil fuels, when all of the assets on these companies' books cannot be burned, if we are going to maintain a safe climate, is a bad investment. And so we've seen, uh, you know, my my union pension, uh, the BCGEU, has decided to divest, and they have made money over and uh, uh, what the stock market has performed because they decided to do that years ago. And so, you know, there is no shortfall by divesting from some of the riskiest uh, companies around. What you're actually seeing is that people are able to invest in technologies like solar and wind and and green energy that have uh, a future and that can pay 
the dividends that uh, pensioners okay. like yourself are looking for. Okay, Cody, what do you say to that? Peter says talks about divesting, but he's specifically talking about Canada because all these big banks and all these institutions are still doing business elsewhere. The world has true. invested trillions in renewables, and yet fossil fuels are still 80% of global demand. Even Elon Musk is saying the world needs more Canadian oil and gas. We have to be pragmatic and honest. Respectfully, I would say that divestment in Canada is neither, and we need to support local Canadian jobs. Oil and gas is a massive multi tens of billions of dollars into our economy every year more than a half trillion since the year 2000 to fund our social security our quality of life and what peter is saying is let the other countries have the market share with weaker environment and climate and human rights standards at the expense mm. of only canadians and that's not fair it's not pragmatic i, I have to respond to that mike i the blackrock the largest financial institution in the world has divested from coal, oil, and gas all around the planet. Divestment is a global movement, and, you know, it is absolutely applying to every country. Peter, you have only been helping Russia and OPEC all these years because global demand has never been higher for coal, oil, and natural gas, and I think that we need more Canadian energy. And oil and gas will do the same. Anyway, I'm not going to try and talk over here. Maybe we can... uh, Okay, well, let's, let's squeeze another call in here while we can. Steve in the West End. Hi, Steve. Go ahead. Hi there. I saw a recent podcast from Dr. Jordan Peterson and guest, and they both came obvious, had the obvious consensus that speeding in, in traffic kills more people than when going a balanced speed. But they also came to the understanding that you can't go one kilometer an hour on the freeway, even though it would stop deaths in, mm. in traffic. So his, his ultimate theme was, look, sure, climate change is bad, but we need to have a reasonable transition. And it takes a, a reasonable amount of time. You can't just, bam, stop it and change the speed limit. So Yeah, okay, it that's an interesting metaphor. Um, P- Peter, your thoughts on that? Like, this gets back to the whole argument about, you know, the point that Cody made earlier about blacking out the economy or turning, you can't turn it off like a, like a light switch overnight. But anyway, your thoughts? Of course we can't turn it off, tonight, off overnight. Yeah. But the faster we are able to eliminate burning fossil fuels, the more lives we will save. Ten million people were displaced in Pakistan when one storm came through and flooded a third of the country. A billion people are forecast to be displaced by the middle of the century by climate disasters. We can prevent as much of this as we can, and we have all the technology we need to do it. So we should be moving as fast as possible. We shouldn't be talking about liquefied natural gas exports and continuing to um, expand and grow the oil and gas industry, which we know is causing this problem. We should move as fast as possible, and I think when we actually decide as a to get that done, we can do it pretty fast. We, okay, we are capable of great things. Go ahead, Cody. Yeah. Global cold demand has never been higher. Canadian LNG will reduce global cold demand, which is higher emissions. Second, when we look at what's happening in Europe, we have to also talk about energy security and environment, and that's Canada's leading role. And third, when we look at the oil and gas companies in Canada, they've been among the biggest investors in renewables and clean technologies and carbon capture and everything else. And if we divest from them, what Peter is saying and what Peter is doing 
They don't add up. We can reduce global emissions by supporting Canadian oil and gas and supporting local Canadian families, communities, Indigenous communities, and jobs. Squeeze in one more. Squeeze in one more call. Dev in Vancouver. Hi, Dev. Go ahead. Hi, the fellow that just mentioned BlackRock. I want you to go onto their website. It's, they have something investing in China. BlackRock. They are investing there with no environmental standards. Bill Barr just wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal calling them out on that. Let's stop the hypocrisy and this fantasy land that we live in, okay? Because they are investing in China where the Uyghurs are being exploited. Okay, Peter, what do you say to that? They are not investing in coal, oil, and gas in China because that is the the policies that they have set out to divest from fossil fuels. Um, obviously, we should not uh, support investment in countries that are have horrific human rights abuses, but we should also take a look at the human rights abuses occurring in our own country, where we have overridden the rights of Indigenous communities to uh, their land and waters that they have, you know, um, that they have access forever as part of their culture and yeah. the right for their culture to survive. Peter, and we have done that with the Trans Mountain you know Pipeline. Majority hang on, hang on. Lewis has clearly hang, hang said no to oil tankers coming through their territory. So you cannot say that their rights are not being violated. Okay, Cody, go ahead. I was just going to say that Peter knows for a fact a majority of Indigenous peoples on Trans Mountain and on Coastal GasLink support that project. You need to listen to everyone, Peter, and have a balanced opinion and stop misleading people because it's not true what you're saying. You want to okay? Absolutely not true that the majority of indigenous, the majority of majority of indigenous people, support these projects. What we know is that there are some indigenous communities that support it. There are some that don't. There are complex governance structures and around who has legitimacy in every every community. I say it all the time. I am. I have never said that Indigenous people full stop oppose these projects. What I'm saying is that Lewicha specifically has opposed the Trans Mountain Pipeline coming through their territory for over a decade, and it is wrong to continue to build it when it puts their culture at risk. Okay. All right. Here we go now with our great debate. Pierre Polyev, would he be good or bad for Canada? Of course, the new Conservative Party leader, you just heard his voice there. He scored a huge win in his campaign for the Conservative Party leadership. He is now the leader of the official opposition in the House of Commons. This sets up the political battle of our lives here, I think. Pierre Polyev taking on justin trudeau in the next election wow what a battle that is going to be okay let's talk about this guy now pierre Polyev. what a great panel we have coming up here for you now have a listen to this one of our panelists martin lukach journalist and managing editor at the breach media he says Polyev is certainly a populist style politician but he believes he's not real. He's a fake populist. Have a listen to part of his video, which is went viral here online, and have a listen to this. Polyev is tapping into anger at inequality and the soaring cost of living, while pointing his finger at the ruling class that is responsible. There's just one hitch. Pierre Polyev has spent his entire political career serving the very elites he vilifies. It's called fake populism. When politicians ride ordinary people's outrage against the establishment into office, then hand the keys to the 1%. Okay, let's discuss this now. Martin Lukacs, you just heard his voice there, managing editor at The Breach Media. Very pleased to welcome him. Hey, Martin, thanks for coming on. 
Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for doing it. Also on the line is Ari Goldkind. Ari is a legal analyst and political commentator, and he's been a frequent guest on the show, and I'm pleased to welcome him back. Ari, thank you for coming on today. Great to be with you, Mike. All right, gentlemen, thank you to both of you. Martin, let me go to you first. The video you did on Polyev here getting a lot of attention. When you call them a fake a fake populist, what do, what do you mean by that? Can you go in a little more detail on that? Sure. Well, to me, it's a classic playbook that he's following. So what what's appealing about him is that he appears to be, you know, speaking to working people's pain and concerns. And, you know, he builds himself a man of the people. He's talking about the cost of living crisis. He's calling out the elite. So far, so good. But far from being a kind of maverick outsider, Polyev is, is actually a political insider who you know, has spent his entire career serving the very elites he vilifies. Just look at the policies he's either overseen while he was in Stephen Harper's government or that he's on record supporting. There's massive tax cuts for corporations. There's suppressing the rights of workers to unionize to better their conditions and, you know, gutting social programs and social assistance that ordinary Canadians depend on. It's not exactly the platform of a people's champion. In a word, I think he's a con man. Okay, Ari, what do you say to that? Well, I think it's interesting because you have to add context to this. I mean, is your fellow guest there saying that Justin Trudeau is more of a man of the people, that Justin Trudeau's policies haven't served the elite, whether it be during the pandemic, which are policies that have served people like me, a lawyer who can work by Zoom, versus what's being done to the ordinary average taxpaying person, who born with a silver spoon in his mouth is really more of a man of the people than a person born to a 16-year-old adoptive mother then adopted by two loving parents who at least resonates in a way that is populist with the general public. And the difference, I think, between me and your guest, and look, I have concerns about certain Mr. Polyev's issues. I think he's completely wrong on cryptocurrency. I'll never understand that. I think he's been proven to be wrong. But, you know, you can't set up a straw man argument and go after Pierre Polyev while ignoring the fact that the guy in charge of the country for the last seven years has been totally, totally tone deaf. I think, and this is Mike, you know, my focus when we talk in previous segments, I'm not concerned with the ivory towers who teach at universities. I'm not concerned with the freeloaders who don't pay tax and evade tax in this country, by the way, costing taxpayers billions. I'm concerned with the ordinary average tax paying mom or dad, maybe some in the energy sector, maybe some across the country who simply want to go to work, have a decent country that isn't in woke world. And that to me is, again, something that Justin Trudeau, I think, is totally out of touch with. Okay, Martin, when... Polyev was campaigning for the Conservative Party leadership. He he spent considerable time here in B.C. And I'll tell you, when he came out here and talked about the the cost of housing here, I I think it connected with a lot of people. I mean, he did a lot of, he's a very strong communicator. So when he talks about, you know, we got to do something about inflation. We've got to do something about the cost of living. We need about the cost of buying a home. We need a government that can at least run a passport office. This is the type of stuff I think connects with connects with people, and I'm sure you would agree. That's the kind of populist stuff he's spinning, but you're not buying it. I, I think he. I think a lot of his diagnosis is right. He's he's totally right that there is a housing crisis, you know. Um, but the problem is, is that when it comes to his the solutions that he's proposing, they often either 
don't do anything to solve the problem or make the problem worse. Like on housing, for instance, he's talking vaguely about forcing municipal, quote unquote, gatekeepers to expand housing supply. That actually wouldn't right. solve the problem of um, skyrocketing rents and homeownership. He ignores completely that it's private developers and private banks that are the ones who've been causing the market to overheat and the ones getting extraordinarily rich. And just to respond to um, my fellow panelists, by no means do I think Justin uh, Trudeau is uh, the savior. I actually wrote a whole book about how um, Justin Trudeau has has hitched kind of woke policies alongside extremely right-wing uh, economic policies that have actually exacerbated the wealth inequalities in this country. Okay. So I okay. think it's a, you know, there, there, we have other choices in this country, thankfully. I think. Hey, hey, Ari, who do you think would make a better prime minister right now? Polyev or Trudeau? Uh, without question, Polyev. And here's a number of reasons why. And I'm happy to hear that your panelist does not think that uh, Mr. Trudeau uh, singing Bohemian Rhapsody is our savior. But here's a couple <laughs> here's a couple points that I don't that I think we should get into in the brief time we have. When you have Jean Charest, who's as milk toast as the day is long, who's as liberal light as the day is long, getting 12%. When even Tom Mulcair called them a shoe-in to win, that Polyev couldn't yeah. compete. Maybe we should listen to the voters in the Conservative Party that whether you like them or not, whether you like Polyev or not, which seems to be now the litmus test, do we like somebody or not? Maybe there's a response that needs to come where the pendulum swings back from woke world to somebody who we think at least understands the plight of the ordinary average person. Here's the point about housing. Justin Trudeau, and and I don't use the term gaslight often, Mike, I think it's overused these days. But, you know, you have somebody saying he's more concerned with affordable housing. You'll remember in British Columbia, there's a man named Mr. Nuro Mohammed. This was the man in charge of housing policy for the liberals who made a fortune flipping 21 separate houses and making millions on the same breath mike and here is the point they'll say that pierre polyev owns some properties and he's been a minister since uh, sorry a member of parliament since he was 20 something and that his background disqualifies him for being the leader of the conservatives and i think to myself point me to something in uh, prime minister trudeau's background that's stronger than that i have trouble finding what that elusive it is okay Okay, Martin, so Ari thinks Polyev would be a better prime minister than Trudeau. What do you think? Well, I, I, would, I would like to think we have better choices than, than one or the other, you uh, know? Um, I'm not sure we and, do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the NDP is an option for voters as well. There's the Green Party. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't judge people ultimately by um, their parents' background um, or... Um, you know, the silver spoon that they may or may not have been born with. I judge them on the policies that they're advocating for, right? Yeah. And when you, when you look at that, for instance, on, on tax, taxing the wealthy, right? Polyev talks yeah. a lot about, you know, the supposed taxes that, um, that working people and seniors are facing. You know, if you look at it, 90% of Canadians aren't paying any more taxes than they were under Trudeau than they were under Harper's time. The people who are still getting off scot-free, tend to be the wealthiest in this country. And that's who Polyev rarely talks about. He doesn't talk about oil companies who are you know, making tens of billions of dollars in profit this year. Their profits have tripled in the past year, while places like BC are covered under smog and smoke, right? Um, mm. 
So if, if anything, Polyev is talking about, um, for instance, um, companies like oil companies paying even less, having even less regulation. So I think right. we have to look at those politicians who are advocating for the wealthiest in our our country to actually pay their fair share. And that's a policy that unites people from the right to the left. Okay. You know, conservatives okay. themselves support okay. that. Okay, Ari, quick response here. We'll fit in a break. Go ahead. Yeah, I think two things. One, you know, Mr. Lukas says, well, there are other options. I don't think there are. I don't think Sheree was an option. He was literally milk a toast, which the country has no appetite for. And very quickly, if you mention the Green Party, Mike, you can fill your audience in on what they're busy fighting about last week, which was a misgendering on Zoom, which seems to have consumed that whole party, rather than the fact that China is burning the world down with their coal. India is a rising economy that makes what we do in Canada look like child's play. So if there's a better candidate than Mr. Polyev, who actually stands for something, who actually has guts or courage, you don't have to agree with them. But you have to admire guts, courage, and authenticity. If he's the best of the worst, well, that's the way democracy works. Because right. as you know, Mike, many people will call democracy the best of a bunch of otherwise worse options. All right. Welcome back. Debating Pierre Polyev, the new conservative leader. Would he be good or bad for Canada? Martin Lukacs and Ari Goldkinder, my guests. Let's take some calls here. Paul on the line in Surrey. Hi, Paul. Go ahead. Hi, I just wanted to mention um, uh, one of your guests said, oh, we have alternatives to Trudeau and Paulier. Well, the NDP, well, the Green, I mean, that, that that's pretty obvious. They're just uh, drinking their own bathwater right now. But Jagmeet Singh, I mean, the NDP has turned from the, the, uh, the voice of, of, of the working uh, uh, person into the voice of the government workers. I mean, and the, and the elite. If, if there's not a more elitist party, it's the NDP. Think okay. about the carbon tax. Take, take a look at your Fortis bill. Look how much carbon tax you're paying on gas if you're heating your home and cooking your food with gas. And now if that triples, think about how much you're going to be paying. For what? I, okay. I still don't even understand what a, what a carbon tax does. Okay, thanks it's, for the call. It's, well, it's a tax. Jug, That's all it is. Thank you. Jugmeet Singh and the NDP, of course, supporting the, the Trudeau government here in their, their governing deal. Martin, your thoughts? Well, I mean... One doesn't need to be a huge fan of the carbon tax to realize that working people are, are, are getting more than they pay out back in rebate. So that aside, um, yeah, I mean, the, look, the NDP is, is, is not a perfect party either. But if you look at their policies, they're proposing things that would benefit working people, an expansion of universal social programs like Pharmacare, dental care, that's stuff we desperately need in this country. They're talking about an increase to wealth taxation, right? The, the, the richest in this country and corporations paying, you know, a fairer share. That would also benefit working people through, you know, greater government revenue for programs that we desperately need. You know, we've seen the pandemic show all, expose all the inequalities in our society. Um, and, you know, on the on the balance, I think the NDP would you know, if they had a chance at power, would be far a far better benefit to ordinary people than what we're right. offered through Polyev or Harp or uh, Trudeau. Ari, what do you say to that? Well, there's a number of points. Let me go back to your caller more than anything else. Your caller sure. mentions the NDP. Jagmeet Singh, who was a former criminal defense lawyer, just like me. A lot of people don't know that. Anybody who drinks the Kool-Aid that this is a man who represents the working man, sort of Tommy Douglas going back to the history of the NDP, there should 
be a party in this country, an extraordinarily interesting country, where the only thing they care about is the working man. Not the way that unions have become crazy, but the working man or woman. A party that's focused on not allowing decent, middle-class, manufacturing, plumbing, HVAC, trade jobs to be disappeared offshore. Jagmeet Singh is no different with his watches and the outfits, where sort of there's this prioritization of the elite universities, the colleges, the bachelor of this or that. Now, that might Mm. be good for people like me, Mike, for people like me. But when you have a party like that that's lost its way, you are now back to Polly Evan Trudeau. And leaving aside Jugmeet Singh, I mean, if you're a person who's interested in truth, you have an NDP that is so massively anti-Semitic at its core that it makes the liberals look like rabbis, even with the Leith Maroof incident. And, you know, talking points about richer corporations paying a fairer share. And these, these are sort of slippery slope arguments that aren't improved by better shoes if you make capital mike and it's a little bit wonky and i'll be quick on this because it's kind of boring if you make capital continue to look for greener pastures you are decimating and destroying the very industries that once made this country strong and are the reason so many of the jobs today are service or tech and that is not a long-term strategic plan okay sadly we're just about out of time uh, Martin, I'll give you the final word here. You got like 30 seconds to wrap up. Okay, go ahead. Well, I think the Polyev strategy is one we've seen before from former conservative premiers, you know, and politicians. They preach populism, but then when they get into power, they deliver poverty. And that's how fake populism works, you know, use working people to get into power and then kick them to the curb. All right. Welcome back. Let's talk about the last remaining COVID rules, restrictions, and mandates now for travel in Canada. If you have been to YVR lately or any other Canadian airports, it does seem to be a little unusual. You still have to mask up when you go into the airport. I took a flight a few weeks ago. It's like everywhere else you can go, masks not required. You're in the airport, you're on a flight, time to mask up. Is it time to drop these remaining mandates, rules, and restrictions. Now, check out this headline on the weekend in the Toronto Star. Trudeau government considering an end now to COVID-19 vaccination mandate at the border and random testing, according to sources speaking to the Toronto Star. Uh, Could they drop the ArriveCan app as well? Lots of speculation that these changes are coming and including whether Trudeau is now feeling some pressure from Pierre Polyev, the new Conservative Party leader. I got Duncan D. standing by to discuss this first. Have a listen to Polyev here calling for these rules to be dropped. We must remove other unneeded barriers by axing the disastrous ArriveCan app. And by ending the remaining COVID vaccine mandates to let people work and travel freely. That's Pierre Polyev there talking to Conservative Party members. They liked what they were hearing from him. Is this where the Trudeau government is heading now, uh, dropping these remaining measures? Let's discuss it now with my guest, Duncan D., former chief operating officer at Air Canada. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Duncan, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. It's always great to have you here. What are your sources telling you? I mean, you've got your finger on the pulse and all this stuff in Canada. Do you and does it seem to you or are you hearing that maybe the government is going to drop these measures pretty soon? 
Yeah, what I'm hearing is that the government is simply going to let the current uh, set of mandates expire at the end of the month. So they were always set to expire on the 30th of September. And in previous expiries, the government has um, extended it and extended it. But this time, it seems like they've basically decided now is the time to let these measures uh, go by the wayside. Yeah. What do you think of that? News. These have been quite um, irritating for travelers and for airline employees. You know, the mask mandate in particular has become uh, increasingly unenforceable. You've got travelers who are nursing their drinks and snacks on aircraft just to keep the masks off. Uh, so, yeah. you know, like a, a, a small cup of uh, a Diet Coke is taking an hour, an hour and a half to, to drink <laughs> because people want to keep their masks off. So it's becoming more and more um, difficult to enforce, but also it's becoming really ineffective. Let me give you an example. Last week, my son visited his grandparents in Vancouver for the first time since COVID. So it was his uh, first visit home to Canada. He's in Boston. He's a doctor in Boston. And, you know, he arrives in uh, to Canada and he's given the this mandatory random test so you know he goes and does it like a the the good citizen that he is um submits the tests and um he left uh, vancouver last thursday it's now monday and the test results have not yet returned so i'm not really quite sure why they were doing this but you know here we are um a week after he took the test and the results still aren't even available Okay, well, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has been asked about this recently, and the answer from him and his cabinet ministers is that they're being cautious. They want that COVID is still out there, it's still a threat, and they're they're erring on the side of caution. So let's talk a little bit about what what restrictions are still in place. So the masking rule is still in place there, right? What, What other rules and restrictions and mandates are still there right now? So uh, the primary restriction is the international arrivals vaccine mandate. So if you don't have um, vaccinations, you're not allowed into the country if you're not a citizen. If you are a citizen, you're forced into a 10-day mandatory isolation, whether or not you have symptoms. So if you're an an unvaccinated Canadian returning home, they put you into a 10-day federal quarantine um, just because uh, you're returning home to Canada. Uh, the other one is this mandatory random testing. So they're saying, you know, three or 4,000 travelers every single day are randomly selected for mandatory random testing so that they can collect data on new variants. Um, you know, experts have suggested that this is not the most efficient way of doing it. So these are the two primary ones. The other one is what you talked about earlier, which is this mask mandate on federal uh, aircraft, federally regulated air uh, flights and uh, uh, railways. So, you know, if you took via rail or if you took a flight uh, to or from Canada, you're supposed to keep your mask on for the entirety of the trip. Right. And in that clip, what we played of the conservative leader, Pierre Pauly of there, he talked about, let's get rid of the disastrous Arrive Can app. And you heard a big cheer from his supporters. What is the status of that Arrive Can app? Is that something that could potentially be scrapped as well? Well, what we've heard, what I've heard from my sources is that what's not, it's not going to be scrapped altogether. It's no longer going to be mandatory. So right now, in order for you to enter Canada, you need to complete the ArriveCan app. What they're saying is it'll be optional. So what they're going to do away with a vaccine mandate, and this ArriveCan app is going to transform itself 
into like an advanced mobile declaration. So you can make your declaration on your phone before you arrive, but it's not going to be required. You can still do your declaration when you enter Canada at a kiosk or at a a human uh, officer's desk. Right. How does Canada's, the, the restrictions that we still have in place here in Canada, how does that compare to other jurisdictions around the world? Like, do most other major countries have similar rules or are most countries have dropped them by now? Most of Europe, uh, in fact, all of uh, the EU has dropped had dropped them at the start of the summer peak. So did the UK. So there weren't any vaccine mandates uh, remaining into the U.S. Uh, they did. They still do have a vaccine mandate for non-American travelers re-entering the U.S. So if you're an American citizen or a green card holder, you enter the U.S. You don't have to be vaccinated, and that's perfectly fine. If you're a non-U.S. citizen, you do. But the U.S. has relied on an attestation, so they, you don't really get asked for a proof, proof of vaccination when you enter. You you provide an attestation to the airline. Um, and they simply uh, accept that it's, you know, they'll do spot checks, obviously, if you are in fact vaccinated, but you know, it's been much smoother going into the U S than in Canada, where you've had to upload your vaccine status to arrive can. And then, you know, when you get into the country, you're questioned as to whether or not you are or aren't vaccinated. Right. Speaking of Duncan D, he's a former executive at Air Canada about the remaining COVID rules, restrictions, mandates in place for travel. Lots of speculation out there that these travel measures could be dropped here at the end of the month. Like if you talk about the the U.S. system right now, again, Duncan, like it was interesting to hear U.S. President Joe Biden on the on the weekend in an interview with 60 Minutes. And he was asked, is the pandemic over? And his answer was yes. He believes the pandemic is over. Like he said, COVID's still out there. It's still a threat. We're monitoring it. But the pandemic is over. So does that... What does that say to you, that that maybe that vaccine mandate could be dropped for entering the United States too pretty soon? Is that possible? Look, it's hard to speculate because we haven't heard anything uh, recent from the U.S. But, you know, when you look at what's happened with Australia and New Zealand, the two toughest countries in terms of COVID restrictions, and with what you just mentioned, the president himself talking about the pandemic being over, it seems like this is something that is going uh, by the wayside all over the world. And, uh, you know, Canada is one of the few countries left that still has them. In terms of the U.S., there's a lot of pressure from the U.S. travel and tourism uh, sector for these mandates, the remaining mandate, which is just the vaccine mandate in the U.S. to be dropped because it's having yeah. a significant impact on them. Do you think that Trudeau and his government are feeling any pressure here on this file from Pierre Polyev, the new conservative leader? We just played that clip of him here. Uh, talking about he wants these measures to be dropped and it got a big response. Now, of course, he's speaking to a partisan crowd of conservatives there. They love what they're hearing from him. But I don't know. There may be a lot of Canadians who agree with him. Your thoughts? I I think you're absolutely right. I think that there's pressure on him. Definitely, uh, you know, uh, the Polyev uh, comments have been widely reported, significant uh, uh, positive reaction to what he said, but also, uh, you know, let's not forget that the prime minister was recently at a caucus retreat in New Brunswick, where you know his, he would have heard an earful from his um, own caucus about the difficulties people have had with travel, with passports, with all of these um, messes that we've seen throughout the summer that have been a direct result of the policies of his government. Yeah, and do you think that dropping some of these COVID measures, rules, restrictions? could 
speed things up at the airport. Like, you know, we've all heard about the security lineups of people having trouble, you know, the wait to get a passport. My family, we're trying to get a passport now too. It's, it's still, it's still a challenge. Would dropping these mandates and rules make it a little easier? I think it'll help in terms of the inbound international arrivals at the airports, no doubt, because the customs officers union themselves have said this thing has been a massive bottleneck in terms of the impact it has, it has on um, security or on passport that remains to be seen. One of the things that hopefully it does is it unjams the, the, the log jam that we've seen because of the government's approach to, you know, managing this as if we're still in the thick of the pandemic, as if we were in 2020. So, you know, hopefully this means that uh, there will be a change in approach. You won't see uh, the lineups that you used to see uh, at least in international customs. And that'll hopefully mean fewer lineups as well at the passport office and at security. All right. Welcome back. As we continue talking about the last remaining COVID restrictions, especially as related to travel, the masking rules on flights, the vaccine mandates, other rules and restrictions. Is it time to drop these rules now? Lots of speculation and indications. That's what's coming. Could these rules be dropped by the end of the month? My guest is Duncan D., former chief operating officer, at Air Canada, phone lines open to him, 604-280-9898. Let me know if you think it's time to drop these rules now. Star 9898 on your cell. Chris in Abbotsford. Hey, Chris. Hey, how are you doing today? I'm good. What do you think? Um, well, I go to an island off of Vancouver every year, and this year we went to Seashells, and it was dead. And every year whether it's Gabriola or Maine or Salt Spring, it's packed. It's busy. Now, I know they're suffering. They have to be. So I think it's done. It's over. Like, open everything up. Like, like so, you, so you think, like, the tourism, the tourism trade is suffering? Oh, it's, like I said, I go every year to a different island, and yeah. it's brutally busy, and now it's, it's dead. Seashell, there was hardly anybody there. Okay. Duncan, so, Duncan D., your thoughts? Look, I think it's an excellent point. Uh, the loudest voices against mandatory ARAVCAN have been from border city mayors. So, yeah. you know, they have seen, you know, with their own eyes that ARAVCAN has been a huge problem for American tourists coming this summer. So hopefully this means that they'll be back. And, you know, Seashelt is a great place to visit. And it's, you know, too bad that they were impacted by this decision to impose mandatory ARAVCAN and these different mandates. Let's go to Donna on the line in Kelowna. Hi, Donna. Go ahead. Hi. Uh, I agree. Get rid of the arrive can. Uh, yeah. Filled it out for my parents on Saturday. They went down to the border on Sunday. We're going to go across for a couple of days. Couldn't get in the app. Uh, thank God I had screenshotted the QR code so they were able to go. But they're in their 80s. They can't figure this stuff out. It's impossible. Um the masks, however, keep those because hubby works in camp. As soon as they lifted the masks, uh, 300 people got COVID. And he brought it home to me, which was not nice. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> yeah. now where, lift- where, does he, where does he work again? What did he, where does he work? Uh, he works at Ikati up north in the diamond mine. <laughs> oh, in a, in a diamond mine. Wow. Yeah, in wow. a camp. In yeah, a camp, right, that, a, like a work camp. Yeah, and they've yeah. just put masks back on again because they've had another outbreak. So don't take the masks away. You'll get COVID. <laughs> okay. Donna, thank you for sharing that. Duncan, your thoughts? 
Look, I think that the one thing that we need to make clear here is no one is taking the masks away. What they're saying is that they're no longer going to be mandatory. So even in the U.S., I was flying uh, between um, uh, Chicago and New York on uh, Saturday, and you know half of the plane was wearing masks because they wanted to wear masks. So I, I think we need to be clear here that no one is restricting the use of masks. What they're basically saying is, you know, let's stop making it uh, mandatory because it's no longer enforceable. People are nursing their drinks as long as they can to keep their masks off. Yeah. yeah. So on those flights in the United States, masks are no longer mandatory. Is that right? Yeah, they haven't been yeah. mandatory for quite some time now, Mike. Right, right. But how, but you notice a lot of people wear them anyway. Yeah, for uh, a trip between Chicago and New York, like I said, about I, I, I was visibly counting the number of people who were keeping their masks on and about half the flight had their masks on throughout the flight and okay. maybe um, i think three out of the four crew members i saw had masks on okay well it seems like the changes are are looming and imminent here we'll see what happens in the days ahead duncan it's always great to have you on thank you for coming on today thanks for the invitation mike